I'm sure glad we don't have to be religious here, you know. Wow. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Let's for the band. These guys just work so hard. Thank you. You ever been in a situation, in a conversation with somebody, and you just couldn't quite figure out what was going on, and you said, just tell me what you want? Anybody? Some of you guys are looking at your wives right now like, I don't get it. Just tell me what you want. That's the situation the Israelites were in when they came in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. They said, Lord, just tell us what you want. What, can you just break it down? And the prophet Micah on the Lord's behalf said, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's it. Just broken down to its lowest possible level. To act justly. I want you to love mercy. And I want you to walk humbly with God. Let's pray. Father, we invite the present power of your Holy Spirit to come into this place and to give us a, a sense of your presence here in this Word, that it would come alive, that these uh, old words from the old Bible would be as though you just breathed them into the room now, Lord, and spoke them into places where we live here in this place and in this time. I know that nobody came to hear a lecture. Nobody came to hear a man. They came because they're hungry for you. They come because they're hungry for you. And nothing else will satisfy but you, Lord, because we have nowhere else to go for the words of life but to you. And so we invite the present power of your Holy Spirit to come into this place in the bringing of your word so that, Lord, whatever words come out of my mouth, I just pray that you'd take them to each set of ears and make them uniquely powerful in each life as though they're the only person in the room, Lord, because I know you would have gone to the cross for any one of us. And so I just pray that you'll speak to us individually in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to pick up uh, where we left off uh, in November on the Through the Bible series, something we started a couple of years ago and have been kind of on and off and dealing with sections of the Bible one book at a time. And, you know, my plan is, as before, is to look at a book of the Bible, today the book of Micah, uh, and look at the general view of it. What's the book about? And then I've prayed to God for a hot spot. What do you want to say to us right here, right now, from the book of Micah? My plan is to finish over the course of the next seven weeks, to finish the last seven minor prophets, which will mean that we will finish the Old Testament. <laughs> Considering the fact that I rarely finish anything I start, I think that deserves a little more than that. Come on. And you guys are like, you ain't done yet, Tom. Anything can happen in seven weeks. If you think about it, and if you've been around the Bible at all, you know you can do some math, and you can plan ahead on this. Because you will know that if you would like to avoid the annual tithing message from me, that you will be gone on February 19th because that's when we'll be in Malachi. And what else can you talk about from Malachi except that, right? So if that really bugs you, and uh, if you've just decided to continue to be disobedient in that regard, (laughs) then you might do yourself a favor and be gone that Sunday. Micah, 
the book of Micah. In context, it was written by Micah. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh? Who is like Him? It's a question. It's like, who is like God? Yahweh, as you may know, is one of the names for God in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And His name means, who is like Yahweh? To pronounce it more in line with Hebrew, it was Micaiah. Micaiah, which the Yah is the Yahweh. And you remember that many of the prophets had God written into their names somewhere so that whenever anybody would ask them their name, they would answer with their, their name and it would be a message about God. In this case, hey, what's your name? Who is like Yahweh? And it immediately brings the subject into, into the front. He wrote around 750 to 687 B.C., We get that from the internal evidence from the book of Micah where he talks about the kings that he was writing while they were here and we know when they were here so we can put a pretty firm date 750 to 687 B.C. which would have been then prior to the fall of both Israel and later on Judah. So it would have been made him one of those early, uh, early minor prophets. I do have a problem with the dating of it, though. The problem is that the last part of the book of Micah seems to address a lot more what's going on after the exile in Babylon. It's it's bringing up stuff that really has more to do with after the exile than before. The problem was, according to internal evidence, Micah didn't, didn't live then. And so there are a couple of answers to this question. The first answer by mostly liberal critical scholars of the Scriptures say, well, Micah didn't write the whole thing. That Micah started it, but that there are actually two other authors who contributed to it afterwards, and so that the later stuff was written by somebody later. And I suppose that's one way to understand and how to reconcile that. I have another suggestion And my suggestion is that Micah was a prophet. I know that's out there. That's way out there. That Micah was actually a prophet and could not only be used by God to speak into what was presently happening, but could freely be used by God to talk about things that are to come. That's kind of what prophets do. And so I'm going that route, especially as it um, occurs to our hot spot, which will be in just a little bit. Micah spoke into a time of widespread idolatry and oppression of the poor. And so when we, when we hear him say, what does God require of you but to act justly, there would be a call to stop oppressing the poor. And so that would have been a very timely part of the message. Um, also, uh, it was a day in which it was believed that by simply making an annual sacrifice, that God's divine justice was satisfied. That, you know, you could just go and you could do the Passover thing, you could buy the lamb, you could have it slaughtered, and the abracadabra stuff could be said, and you could go home and eat and have your Passover party, and then just pretty much live the way you wanted to, and then just think about next Passover. So what had happened was they were living in a day when there wasn't dynamic relationship with Yahweh, with God, But there was, in fact, 
just this empty religious kind of observance. Well, I'm just going to go. I'm going to check off the box. And so this is the day into which Micah is speaking, and it's all prior uh, in the first part to the fall of, of Israel to the Assyrians and then uh, Judah to the Babylonians a, bit, a little bit later on. And so that's where we are. That's what the book is about. The hot spot, as I've uh, alluded to a couple times here, is in Micah 6.8. And again, just to remind those of you who may be new or tell those of you who may be new, the hot spot is the, is the place in the book where I just like to say, okay, Lord, that's what the book's about and that's what it was about then. What does it mean for us now? What do you want to say now? And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says these words, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's likely that's not the first time you've heard those words. There might be some of you who are newer to the Lord and newer to the Word and haven't heard those words until today. And we just cherish you. That's why we're here. I've said many times that I'm really here for those of you who are looking for God, and I just tolerate these Christian people because <laughs> they pay my, my rent and so, so that I can live for you. But we really cherish the fact that you're here. And uh, so if those are new words to you, God bless you as you're just trying to soak in everything that God has for you. But those words, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, are words that have been used on banners by lots of movements of the church throughout history. A couple of the more recent would have been the social gospel movement of the first half of last century. Well, that makes sense. Well, this is really what the gospel is, is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And even in the more recent days, some of the um, activist movements of the millennials who are really using that as a saying, you know, we get all this getting saved stuff and all that stuff, but how, how does this gospel message really impact the way we live and the systems of justice and injustice that we have? I, I pray that a lot more millennials would get on board with that whole message and find their way. I really, really pray for them. Um, and so it's probably not the first time that you've heard it. And I like it that that it's broken down to such a simple formula. I mean, don't you just want to say, Lord, I'm in. Just tell me what I need to do. Can you just make it as simple as possible? And so when we hear, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, it's like, wow, even those, though those three things are really hard to do, at least there are only three, right? I like it when it comes in threes. I'm much more apt to remember them. I'd rather have three hard things to do than 10 easy things, actually. And so I like it from that respect. But I think God has a couple of things for us today that, that may be fresh for some of you. And the first thing that I, I want to point out is that since God said, here's what he requires of us, that we would act justly and love mercy, that we must be able to do those things at the same time. Because in our minds, isn't there a tension between justice and mercy? Don't they kind of live in opposition or at least some kind of polar tension with each other? So that it seems like there would be situations uh, in which we would have to choose either justice or mercy. 
I mean, imagine that you're the member of a jury. And imagine that, you know, the whole conviction thing is all, that whole phase is all done, that the murderer confessed, that there was absolutely no doubt that this person committed a premeditated murder. But that now you were in a different phase. Now you were in the sentencing phase, and the judge was asking you, as 12 people, to decide whether this person should die by lethal injection or receive life imprisonment. That would be a terrible situation to be in, wouldn't it? But imagine yourself being there, and wouldn't you kind of be struggling with the tension between, should we mete out justice? This man showed no mercy for his victims. Should we not mete out justice and pay for their lives with his life? There's a side of us in there, right? And then the tension is, but we could also show him mercy. That there's an argument that wells up inside of us that says, his death is not going to bring them back. So perhaps we should extend mercy and cause him to live the rest of his life in prison. And so we kind of get it set up in our minds that justice and mercy, they can't really live at the same time. Some of you may be faced that that question as you went through the last presidential election. What a terribly difficult decision it was for everyone to make. On the one hand, you were drawn to this message of justice, weren't you? There was something that welled up inside of you that said, you're right, Japan ought to be paying for their own military. They're a prosperous country, and here we are, because of World War II, we're still paying for their military. And so wasn't there something that kind of said, it would be just to have a president who said, we're not doing that anymore. I mean, that, there was an appeal to that message, yes or no? Yes, you don't want to say, because you still don't want to talk about it. I get that. <laughs> but at the same time, wasn't your desire for mercy disturbed when that same side of the aisle said, and here's how we're going to deal with ISIS. We're going to bomb the heck out of them. Irrespective of the thousands of innocent lives that would be lost as collateral damage. I mean, there's a side of you that said, yeah, bomb them. They're killing the world. But isn't there a side of you that says, but what about the innocents who can't help but live there? And so you were struck. You were pulling between justice and mercy. You went to the other side of the aisle and you said, you heard a message that said, by, as an act of mercy, we should be welcoming Syrian refugees into our country who are otherwise drowning in the Mediterranean. And so your heart was like, well, of course we should. We're a nation of refugees. We should find a way to, to, to prevent this terrible thing from happening. And so you had this, you had this sense of mercy gr- rising up in you. But at the same time, your sense of justice for the rights of the unborn was, was offended, wasn't it? You said, but I can't go that way because of the rights of the unborn, and I feel an obligation to stand up for them. And so you were torn. You were torn between what seemed like a decision of justice versus mercy. It was difficult for everybody, and I just applaud you for, for praying and and for, for praying your, for voting your conscience and respecting everybody else as they did that. It's just a very, very difficult time, I think, for all of us. 
And so we get this idea that justice and mercy, we have to pick one or the other. But God said, here's what I require of you, that you would act justly and love mercy. I don't think he's going to call us to something that we can't do, or is he somehow going to give us the power to do it? And so I'd just like to, for you to notice that in your desire to be faithful to God, your example of justice and mercy together are in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the perfect expression of justice and mercy happening at the same time. That when Jesus died on the cross, he perfectly satisfied the need for justice of a holy God. And our sins had offended a holy God. Our sins came as a true offense to a holy God. And they should come as an offense to a holy God, or else he's not holy. And so on the cross, on the cross, the the payment of Jesus Christ is that he satisfied perfectly the just demands of a holy God. At the same time, he also provided the full opportunity for mercy that we needed in order to be saved. We didn't have anything to bring, right? We, didn't, we couldn't pay the penalty. We couldn't buy our own bail. We couldn't pay the penalty. We couldn't do time. There's no purgatory. You don't do time for your sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the price. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're a believer today, then when you die, your last moment in this world will commence into the next moment in the presence of God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But in doing that, he he satisfied justice and he brought mercy at exactly the same time. He's both at the same time. So how can he be both of something at the same time? Well, by illustration, if I think about it, I think I am both a terrific and a terrible grandfather. And I'm both of these things at the same time. I'm a terrific grandfather to my soon-to-be 15 grandkids. I know. I'm a terrific grandfather to my grandchildren because there is almost nothing I won't do for them. I mean, they can pretty much just ask, and we're, we're on our way. We're doing it. And uh, sometimes it gets me into a little bit of trouble <laughs> with their parents. I'm glad I don't really care what their parents think about me anymore. It's, all right, yeah, I'll deal with that, Jack. That's going to happen. Sometimes I get myself in a little bit of trouble because I'm such a terrific grandfather. On uh, December the 17th, we had our family Christmas, had everybody together, and all the grandkids' kids were there. It was just pretty much controlled chaos at our house. It was awesome. And at one point, my two-year-old grandson Solomon, he came up to me, and he had a cookie in his hand. And he comes walking up to me, and his nose is like running down to his bottom lip, you know? Sweat kid's face is kind of red and stuff. So he obviously was sick. And he's chewing on this cookie, and then he holds it up to my mouth. (laughs) Grandpa! So what did I do? I ate the cookie, of course. In fact, I didn't just eat the cookie. 
But because his hand is so small, I put, his, I put my mouth around his whole hand. And I'm going, oh, oh, his germ-ridden hand. Oh, 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 right? And why do I do that? I do that because he laughs hysterically when I do that. And because that makes me a terrific grandfather, right? That was on Saturday. On Monday, I was puking so hard. I spent Monday in the bathroom with, oh, you know how sometimes the rim just feels right on your forehead? It was that bad. So I'm a terrific grandfather in that there's almost nothing I won't do for my grandchildren. But I'm also a terrible grandfather because there's almost nothing I won't do for my grandchildren. And we've had some mishaps along the way. I remember when Jason fell out of the haymow. Wouldn't have been so bad if there had been ground there, but I had I was installing a hydrant, a water hydrant, a freeze-proof water hydrant. So I dug a four-foot hole in the ground, and so he fell out of the haymow all the way into the bottom of the hole. And he wasn't as tall as the hole at that point. And so one of them came in, Jason fell in, and I go out there, and there's his little hand sticking up. Those same kids have rolled over snowmobiles on the property because I was chasing them on the other one. <laughs> we used to play a, a game with my grandkids. I used to play this game called Dog Mouth. And I would say to them, the younger ones, I would say, you know, I have a condition called Dog Mouth. And they go, oh, what's that, Grandpa? I said, well, there's this thing here. It, just don't ever touch me here. Just whatever you do, just don't ever touch me right here. Well, what's the next thing they're going to do, right? They're going to touch me, and when they touch me, they're going to go, and they jump and laugh, and it's fantastic, and we did that for a while. And Evelyn, some of you know Evelyn, she's in high school now, but she was just three years old, and she was playing dog mouth, and she touched me there, and I went, and she didn't move her hand fast enough, and I bit her finger hard. It was an accident, but she's just looking up at me. (laughs) So it's possible to be a terrific and a terrible grandfather at exactly the same time. It is possible for Jesus Christ to be absolute perfect justice and essential mercy at exactly the same time. And it's important that we capture this view of him because if we express one side at the expense of the other, we don't have a full view of God. And if we don't have a full view of God, bad things can happen. If we don't have a biblical view of God, we make one up of our own. And if we make one up of our own, we won't worship him deeply. You won't be able to worship deeply God if you don't know who he is. And you also won't follow him well you'll make decisions that are much more about you because that's the natural inclination of man. But we have to understand that God is mercy, but he's also justice, that he's still holy, that our sins matter. Even though they're forgiven, our sins matter. And we can't emphasize the mercy side of God to the expense of the justice side, or else we'll just, we won't change ourselves. We won't ask God to change us and to bring righteousness into our lives. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is what you want to look at for that. There's one more thing about, um, about justice and mercy that I want, to, I want to show you. And the second thing has to do 
with how we approach God. Go back to Micah 6, 8 again. And so what does the Lord require of you? Well, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I think there's a bigger context here that we've got to get a hold of. This would have only made sense to say after the exile. Because they already spent that captivity, that slavery in Babylon. Where for years they sat around, and they sat around these fires at night, realizing that they had ignored the warnings of the prophets, they had ignored God, and they were in exile because of their disobedience. And so they would have talked around fires at night going, you know, if we ever get back to Jerusalem, it's going to be different. If we ever get back to Jerusalem, we are not going to ignore God. We're not going to say, well, it's just about slaughtering a lamb at Passover. But we're going to go back, and we're going to go back big. So what do you require of us, God? I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were distant from God and you just felt like, I got to get back. I got to I gotta find my way back. And you, like the Israelites, were in some kind of bondage, some kind of slavery, some kind of captivity even. And you were embarrassed about it and you felt guilty and you were ashamed. And so you started making these promises to God where you said, God, if I ever get back to you, I'm coming back big. I, I'm going to come back so big, I'm ten times what I was before, you won't even recognize me at first. I don't know if you ever did that. Say, when I come back, I'm going to come back big. I'm going to make all these promises to you. Well, that's what the Israelites were doing here. If you look at Micah chapter 6, just go two verses ahead of verse 8, and you'll see the context. They ask a question, another question first. They said, well, with what shall I come before the Lord? If we get back there after this terrible thing we've done, with what shall I come before the Lord? What shall I bring, really? What could I, what could I bring to God that would be right? And bow down before the exalted God. What, what, what would be right after all we've done? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And they're like, well, that's what we did before. That was our sort of regular thing. So they... They ramp it up a lot here in the next verse. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? I'm, yeah, I'm going to bring so many rams to God. He's just not even going to be able to keep up with my sacrifice. With 10,000 rivers of oil? Well, what's that? Well, one of the common ways to bring your tithe to the temple, especially if you were traveling from some distance, was to convert whatever it is you grew into oil because it was easier, into olive oil because it was easier to transport and olive oil was freely used in the temple. And so if you were a barley grower, well, instead of bringing a tenth of your barley to Jerusalem, if it was your time for pilgrimage, then you, you might be able to convert that into oil and it would be a lot easier to bring and oil was a lot more valuable than, 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 um, than barley. And so they're asking the question, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? And then they take it one step up higher. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Since we're coming back and we've done so wrong, should we sacrifice our children to him? Would that be enough? And you hear what's going on in their hearts? They're repentant. They want to come back. 
They want to get it right. The temple's rebuilt. The wall's rebuilt. They're back in Jerusalem. What shall we bring? And then the prophet answers in verse 8. Well, he showed you, oh man, what is good. He's already told you what he wants. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It's not about all of our great sacrifices. It's not about all of our great promises. It's about doing that. It's about just coming back. Jesus told that story, now famous story, about a guy who at some point kind of said, screw you to his father, and he left the estate. And he went out and lived in riotous living, and at some point he came to his senses, and he was embarrassed and ashamed and felt guilty. And he said, i got to go back to the house. I got to go back. And so he conjured up this scheme in his mind that, that he, would, he would say this to his father. He would say, Father, I've sinned, and it would be better for me to be a slave in your house than it would for me to be a, a peasant out here. And he had this whole thing rehearsed in his mind of what he was going to say to his father. And then he had it, I'm sure, worked out in his mind what the father was going to say to him. And you probably never did this before, did you? That that you just kind of worked out what you were going to say, and then they were going to say that, and then you were going to say this, and you had it all mapped out. Well, this guy coming back ran into a problem. The problem was the father hadn't learned his lines. The father hadn't studied the script. You see, he was supposed to, in 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 the son's mind, the father was supposed to be all angry and bring discipline, and you're going to pay for this, son. But he hadn't studied his lines. So Jesus said that when the father saw the son, the Bible says, a long way off, that he ran to him. He left his throne. Is Is this falling on anybody? He left the estate. He ran to him. How did, he, why did how did he even know he was there? Because the father wasn't sitting on his throne brooding in anger about the sin of his son. The father got up every morning and he looked at the horizon and said, Is this the day my son's coming back? Is this the day? And it says when he saw him a, a long way off, he ran to him. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And he put the robe of his heritage on him. So you're wearing the wrong clothes, man. And you're eating the wrong food. He fed him from his own table. You see, I don't really think that Micah can be said to be looking too far by looking a couple hundred years ahead. I think Micah was looking a lot farther ahead than that, and he was looking 800 years ahead to the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because while those people are the question of this passage is, what do I bring to God if I want to come back? What's going to be enough? The answer is the same. You don't have anything I want except you. You're the only thing I want. Just come back to me. Just come back. You don't have to make all these promises and sacrifices. No, just come back. You've wandered. You've drifted. You, you realize that? Just come back. King David committed a pretty big sin when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, which led then to the murder, the arrangement of the murder of her husband. 
And in Psalm 51, he said, I want to come back, God. He said, against you and you only have I sinned. You've broken me. I get it. And he says the most interesting thing in verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. So the question of what the Israelites were asking, you know, do you want rivers of oil? Do you want thousands? He says, that's not what you want. I know that. Verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So that's what the call of God is on us, is just to come back. Just to come back. In our Wednesday home group this week, we started studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we looked at the Beatitudes, and the first one is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke just says it, blessed are the poor. Those who realize they don't have anything to bring to God. We're bankrupt. We don't have anything to offer God. Good news is we don't need anything. Jesus does all the work for us. This morning I was out walking the wall, and this is a brisk walk, I'll tell you. And I got around to the cross over there, and, and the Lord just pushed me down to my face in the snow. Spoke so lovingly to my heart. And while there, I was inclined to ask this question, what can I bring? And I realized, I realized that after 40 years of following Jesus, I don't have anything more to offer him than I did on day one. I can't say, look at all the things that I have done. Look at how, I don't have anything. I am the same. Here you go, Lord. And he welcomes us home. You say, well, if I come and I receive that, what do I owe? You might be inclined to say nothing, but the Bible says there is one thing that you owe. If you take God up on this, Romans 13, 8 says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I am absolutely certain that there are people in here right now who are feeling stirred like, I want to come back. You know the terms. You know the conditions. That's none of our business. You may feel really far away or just a little far away. You may have never come to him before. You may have been before and just say, I'm not where I was. I want to come back. Well, if that's you, I want to pray for. I want to pray with you. I just want to pray with you. I don't want to make you do anything. No promises. You don't have to bring anything, except your contrite heart. You just want to come back. If that's you, and you would privilege me to pray for just a moment with you, I'm going to ask you to do something very courageous. I'm going to ask you to get up from where you are right now and come here. Just come up here, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to ask you to sign anything or make any promises or anything of the sort. I just want to pray with you. I'm not going to enroll you in a class. I'm not going to, 
I just come on up and just make a group, and I just want to pray with you. Because you're just saying in your heart, yeah, I want that, right? I mean, you're just saying I want to come back to God. I want to come to God. It's a courageous thing to do. It's a humbling thing to do. I get that. But God does stuff when we do this. God does stuff. Praise God. You guys. You guys are the people I get up for in the morning. No, you may have a view of your own walk with Jesus as in and out, up and down. But I just want to tell you that you guys are the guys that I get up for. I love everybody in the church the same. I just love you guys a little more. Anybody else who wants to be a part of this prayer? Freedom from bondage, freedom from religious bondage and guilty expectations of yourself. Freedom from that constant awareness of your own failures and into the perfect love that casts all of this stuff out and puts you into a place of intimacy with the Father by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. says you couldn't have possibly been living a life that was bigger than the sacrifice of Jesus. So you're covered as you come to him and just lay this stuff before him. You're covered. You're covered. You don't need to bring anything in your hands. Don't make any promises, whatever you do. Don't make any promises like that is the payment for this restoration. The payment's made. You can't add death and resurrection of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come for these beloved of the fellowship here. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and that you'd meet them in this, this place of need and, and, and desire that something's churning inside of their hearts that says, I want God. I want back with God. I want God for the first time. I just want God and I, I just pray for that. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be welcome 
in each one of their hearts and welcome um, not only to come and restore that relationship, but right now to fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit so that they would find strength and power to walk the walk that's always been in their heart to walk. Please come, Lord, and bless those who with contrite heart and courage and humility have made their way up here. I just pray, God, your blessing on them as they come back. Holy Spirit, come. More. More, Lord. More. More, Holy Spirit. More, Lord. Just the redemptive work of the cross in your life, the restorative work of the Holy Spirit in you. More, Lord. sort of blocking that connection with God, confess it. And hear this first, though. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So get ready for a cleansing. More, Lord. Just the washing of the Lord over you. The Bible says in Ephesians that God presents us to, or that Jesus presents us to God holy and blameless, spotless and without blemish. Put on your robes. Put on the robes of righteousness that the Lord has for you. He's run off of his throne. He's come all the way out to meet you. He's been waiting. He's been watching. Is today the day that your heart will come back to him? Just put on the robe and eat from his table. Let the Spirit of God come. Spirit of the God come. Just enjoy your time with the Lord here. I want to ask some prayer ministry people to come up to both sides. Come on up and be available to pray for other people. If there's somebody who'd like to have prayer, come on up and they'll be be happy to pray with you. Church, can we stand together and just worship the Lord and continue to respond to God for just a few minutes? Just a few minutes.